Welcome to the Asian Education Podcast, which is produced by the UNESCO Chair at Kyushu University um, in association with the Comparative Education Society of Asia. I'm Edward Vickers, and this time I'm conducting the interview online with Yoko Mochizuki in Paris and Tara Demel in Colombo. I myself am also in Sri Lanka, but somewhere else. So we're very uh, privileged to be joined today by Tara Demel, who's had about 30 years of involvement at a very high level in the education policy field in Sri Lanka, serving as vice chair of the Education Commission under former President Chandrika Kumaratunga uh, from the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s. Uh, so Tara was really a main education advisor for President Kumaratunga. And more recently, she's uh, been involved in running a sort of education think tank NGO called Education Forum, which serves as a platform for discussing education reform proposals uh, here in Sri Lanka. So thanks very much for joining us today, uh, Professor Demel. And um, can I start by asking you how you originally came to be involved in the education policy field in Sri Lanka? Because your background, as I understand it, was in medicine uh, originally. Thank you, uh, Edward, and hello, Yoko. It's nice to be doing this interview with you. Um, yeah, so I'm a medical doctor by profession. I have been uh, working in the teaching in the medical faculty in the University of Colombo for nearly 13 to 14 years. Uh, that's in the late 80s to around the mid 90s. And uh, during that period, um, I was involved at, at the inception of a medical curriculum reform process as well. But no sooner I started getting involved there, by about 1995, 96, that period, uh, President Chandrika Kumar Tunga had recently assumed office as a president and she had a huge interest in changing the education system, which she believed, I think, quite rightly, was outdated and it did not serve the needs of that time. And I had known her previously as well, and she knew of my interest in education reform. So she invited me to join her office as uh, firstly her advisor on education, health and child protection. And simultaneously, she appointed me into the National Education Commission as vice chair, vice chairperson uh, uh, res with the responsibility of policy formulation in the National Education Commission. So the National Education Commission is actually the uh, principal policy formulating body in the country for education. And that ranges from early childhood education right up to tertiary. So it has ex-officio members like the Secretary to the Ministry of Education and so on. It also has a few experts um, who have some kind of experience and understanding on developing education policy. So I was there for nearly one and a half terms. Each term lasts for five years. Um, during that period, the education National Education Commission took upon itself as a principal mandate to develop policies uh, to completely change the education system of Sri Lanka. Uh, that also stems from the previous commission, that's like my predecessors in the commission. They had started a public dialogue on the 
gaps in education policy, uh, the gaps in pedagogy, the gaps in the resources, infrastructure resources, human resources, teacher training, and so on. So they had a very long period, I think something like four to five years of ongoing public dialogue uh, on the need for reform. So it kind of became very easy for us in the commission starting in 1996 to take on the information that our predecessors had collected in terms of public sentiment, which was all in favor of change the system. This is too much rote learning, teacher-centered, exam-centric education. We need to make our children tune into the 20th, 21st century needs because 2000 was coming close and so on. So it became easy because we had um, a set of demands from the public and that public included teachers, principals, parents, so on. Um, to facilitate or rather to expedite the work of the National Education Commission and to start rolling out reforms uh, as and when they were being prepared. The president appointed a presidential task force for education. Uh, she actually appointed like three task forces. One was for school education, uh, one for tertiary education, that's university education, and also for technical education and vocational training. So it, it, it was a big area that was being undertaken. I, I was sorry, I was just going to say, perhaps we should step back slightly um, and um, discuss, you know, the, the sort of main challenges for education as you confronted them in the mid-1990s when you came into that role, you know, and, and how that sort of fits into the broader story of Sri Lanka over the last few decades. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, compared to its South Asian neighbors, and indeed, you know, compared to most societies, um, around the world. I mean, Sri Lanka's educational record, educational performance, if you like, you know, has long ha been seen as having considerable strengths. Um, but it's also been seen as, 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 as having played a role in contributing to, in, in fueling uh, the conflicts that have riven Sri Lankan society over the last 50 years or more. Um, so when you were coming into that role in the mid 1990s, I mean, I was going to say you're facing a crisis, but, but then Sri Lanka over the last 50 years has faced a succession of crises. But I mean, did you, is, is that how you felt? Is that how you saw it? Did you see, uh, education as, um, uh, partly to blame for, um, many of the acute problems that Sri Lankan society was facing then um, and arguably still faces now. And, and so what, you know, what were the key priorities uh, that you saw for education policy in terms of dealing with that yeah. crisis? Um, so like I mentioned briefly earlier, one of the main issues was that the education of the time, the delivery of education at that time was not in keeping with the demands of society of that time. So when it came to whether, uh, were we producing uh, students that were capable of facing the challenges of an employment market 
of the late 19s, 2000s? No. Uh, were we having a system of education where the children became problem solvers, um, critical thinkers, analysts who were able to do collaborative learning? No. Uh, we had students that came out of the school system with very good grades, mind you, because it was an exam-centric system, which sadly is the same now. And so teachers used to teach or tuition masters used to coach students to be able to face exams, exam papers. So naturally, they got good grades and the grades became better and better as they went on. But did they actually become learners? Did they learn to learn? The answer was no. And the reason uh, why we were able to say that is uh, because in terms of the job market at the time, uh, at that time, the digital learning was just only coming into bloom. It, un unlike now, it was just happening. Um, computer science and internet-based uh, uh, education, none of those were really in vogue as it is now. But the students were really not prepared. Uh, partly because the resources available in the school was inadequate, physical resources, human resources, and financial resources. Apart from that, the outlook, the how the education system was looked at. Then we were in the midst of a war, a 30-year conflict. We were in the midst of that. And uh, one of the things that was so stark and relevant that there was no um, social cohesion is the word. Uh, there was no avenues laid for students of all parts of the country uh, to meet, to study together, to learn together. There was a huge polarization in terms of language. Students in the mm -hmm. north could not speak the language of the students in the south and vice versa. Um, so there were so we thought, yeah. So sorry, we're, I mean, just, just just to explain again for the benefit of listeners who may not know that much about Sri Lanka. So we're talking about the, uh, or you're referring to the Tamil yeah. uh, uh, the insurgency in the North, uh, that, that conflict, uh, which by the 1990s was dominated by the, the Tamil Tigers uh, and their struggle with the Sri Lankan state. Uh, but perhaps it's also worth mentioning that in addition to that struggle, certainly from the 1970s through to at least the early 1990s, there was another struggle within the Sinhalese community in the sort of south and central of the island, uh, which involved the JVP, which is a sort of okay. socialist, more Maoist in its origins um, party, which had its own violent uh, struggle uh, against the Sri Lankan states. So that's there's a sort of ethnic struggle going on alongside a, a class uh, or perhaps class and caste-based um, uh, struggle within Sri Lankan society. Yep. Uh, so it's a very sort of complicated, very fraught combination of conflicts. Absolutely. And the casualty, as I see it, apart from the economy, which of course plunged the economic growth to whatever we had at that time into an abyss, apart from that, for me, the biggest casualty was education. Because uh, when... When you talk of the crisis in the north, uh, that's the Tamil uh, Tiger, the, the, the LTT-led crisis. Students in the north were deprived of education. Schools and universities were shut for long periods, and they were hugely hindered in continuing their education. And like you mentioned, the insurgencies in the south led to a similar problem. So Sri Lanka was torn 
uh, in different directions due to these political, socio-political issues, uh, and education was a major casualty. And maybe we lost several generations during that period. So 1996, the time we embarked upon education reform, uh, was actually a period like this, uh, fraught with conflict, worry all the time, wondering, where will the next bomb go off? You know, it was that kind of tension packed situation. And the president also had, apart from education reform being one of her main planks of coming out of this crisis, she was also extremely conscious of the need uh, for bringing in a system for social cohesion, for uh, inclusivity, for pluralism, and to make sh making sure that children learn to live as one um, without any discrimination, to respect others' views and tolerate dissent and so on. So all of these were woven into the new curriculum reform agenda. That's why I mentioned all of that. Uh, so the yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and as you say, I mean, the conflict uh, and its consequences for Sri Lankan society posed a number of challenges for education. Um, but to put it, to turn it around the other way, uh, those who have analyzed the origins of these conflicts in Sri Lankan society have also, to some extent, to some extent, placed some of the blame on education, haven't they? Um, but so if we go back to the early 1970s and the, the first JVP uprising against the Sri Lankan state, uh, who were at the core of that uprising? It was, um, underemployed, rural, educated youth, largely, wasn't it? Um, and also, if we look at the struggle between the state and, and the Tamils, uh, I mean, that's been traced back to um, a desire on the part of many Sinhalese politicians and, and their electorate to um, redistribute what were seen as educational opportunities that were up to the 1950s or 1960s disproportionately benefiting Tamils, uh, or at least that was a widespread perception. So education has been a sort of battleground for uh, distributing or redistributing um, opportunities within Sri Lankan society. Um, uh, partly because of the success of the educational system, you've had a lot of uh, people graduating from high school, uh, from college, um, but then the economy has struggled to accommodate uh, or provide um, suitable jobs for people of that level of education going back several decades. I mean, would you think that's a fair assessment? Um, in a way, yes, but let me kind of paraphrase what you're trying to say. Uh, yes. yes, please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, like you quite rightly said, it's a series of um, tension-ridden decades. And you say lots of students were coming out of high school. Yes, so the access to education was there. Uh, except, like I said, in times of conflicts when schools and universities had to close. But the access, when I say access, is that um, every student was able to enter a school uh, free of charge. And we have 10,155 schools in the country. University education is by and large free again when at that time we had 15 um, universities. But being having access to a school 
does not necessarily mean access to high quality education and does not necessarily mean that when the student comes out of high school or out of university that they are actually you know comparable to their peers of middle income countries or countries that are more developed than sri lanka and so that is the issue so they have the access they can read and write so there is this literacy numeracy and gender parity we have a very healthy healthy gender parity these three statistics that i mentioned have kind of spuriously made everybody feel sri lanka had an excellent story on education i mean so much so that when i used to always say yes we have a literacy of something like 95 to 97% um uh, primary school enrollment was well over 90% Uh, gender parity was perfect when i used to say please don't get carried away by those spurious statistics uh, i was faulted by people but then that's the reality you come out of school but if you are not equipped with the sciences the technology and if there is no proper social cohesion or the student comes out without an understanding of how to live with fellow sri lankans irrespective of ethnicity city religion culture and so on i mean then what's the point so my concern was that and that is why i said let's not be hasty to judge our education system and kind of immediately put it on a pedestal without looking at the overall complexion right so well uh, yeah i mean the point you're making essentially is that you know the statistics in terms of access to education don't tell the whole story you need to open up the educational box you know look at the contents look at what's actually being uh delivered in schools and colleges what what the curriculum is basically um but also in sri lanka it's not just a question of curricular content it's also a question of medium of instruction of language and you've already mentioned language i mean this is one of been one of the key um bones of contention in in the sri lankan system i mean going at least back as far as the early post independence years the 1950s uh and the 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 sinhala only act as it's known the the legislation to to effectively make sinhala the national language and effectively there, thereby to demote tamil and english um uh, as uh, official languages here in sri lanka um and when you were involved as a key policy advisor in the late 1990s and early 2000s um you sought to address that issue in particular didn't you uh the issue of language um there was a, a bilingual policy that that you were involved in promoting yeah, definitely the the policy on language was twofold one is that uh we had made every endeavor to ensure that children from primary class onwards learn both official languages the official we have just two official national languages that's tamil and sinhala so if every single child necessarily learns both languages uh, to me it would be kind of irrelevant whether the child is studying in a school in the north or the south because they're equally conversant in that that couldn't happen the second uh, aspect of the language policy was to mandatorily make english medium conversational english as well as grammatical english uh, english that can be 
uh, used properly in terms of spellings and syntax and prose and so on. Plus, English to be used as a medium of instruction for certain subjects for a start, like the sciences, the math, the tech subjects. To bring that policy in simultaneously, but making it an option in the initial years, allowing the parents the kind of the freedom to choose whether they'd want their students, uh, their children to learn in English medium. So this was the twin aspects of the language policy. Um, let me take the second one first, that is English as a medium of instruction, the ability to converse fluently, the, um, the grammatical component, the spelling, uh, everything, you know, writing a simple essay and so on. For that, there is, we developed a dedicated a kind of a structure for training teachers. And that structure exists to this day, I'm happy to say. The structure consists of a large number of English teacher training institutions. Uh, we had partners like the British Council, the Peace Corps, uh, UNICEF, World Bank, several international uh, and development partners helped us in building that up. Uh, so the aim was to make sure that we produce double or treble the number of English teachers every year. At that time, about 150 came into the system every year from English teacher training colleges. Uh, we wanted to make it 400. We actually achieved that towards the early part of 2000. And that was going to increase as we move along. That's one component. And in order to be able to uh, teach in the English medium, some of the subjects, like I mentioned, um, we had a parallel program using the universities, uh, the, depart <clears throat> the departments of English, and other people to help us, help the master educators as it were. So it, it was a massive program, uh, which may have borne full fruit, I feel, if it was allowed to go on for three years, four years at a stretch. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. Because? Two things. One is that um, when in the, in the Sri Lankan context, uh, policies change when politicians change, which is an extremely unfortunate situation. So when the president finished her term in end of 2005, and when she left, uh, her successor and their new government did not take up the policies on language, which we had introduced, with the same vigor, the commitment, and the uh, what shall I say, the dedication that uh, it was done the previous several years. So that's the unfortunate thing. Uh, so when such a new program, new set of policies are not driven, you need leadership to drive change. You know this, uh, Edward. So when the leadership is moved out, and necessarily I too moved out at that point, allowing uh, my successors to take over, uh, the momentum dipped. But in parallel, I must also say, one major reason why these policies couldn't be rolled out even earlier that we would have wished to during the tenure that I occupied um, the education policy advisory role was due to very serious opposition for English medium education um, from political groups. And that's a fact. 
the JVP was one main, uh, very, very vocal group that opposed it. So, so that, that's the, the, the left wing uh, party. Okay. I mean, basically, actually, the former sort of Marx Maoist terrorist Absolutely. group. Um, this very ultra left wing kind of. Uh, uh, but, all, but also actually quite nationalist. Very. And sadly, they, you know, they are very vocal. I mean, they are very present. They are visible on the streets. Uh, student unions, they are able to convince and coerce to join them. I have written all of that in this book that I published. I, I hope you'll get a chance of having a look at it. Um, so when that happens and when they manage to kind of create a critical mass, not exactly a critical mass, but somewhat like one, uh, even those politicians and associates of the ruling party, uh, whose leader was President Kumar Ratnagar at that time, some people from that party as well joined uh, these same groups of people, the ultra-left parties, particularly the JBP, when they oppose this. So everything gets delayed, you know, because it's a question of conversations, discussing cabinet approvals, you know, it's, it's like, it's like one obstacle after the other. It's like a hurdle race. But I must say this before I uh, listen to your question again, Edward. Um, the irony is that most of the major people, the opponents, the major opponents of this language policy, particularly English medium policy, had their children attending English medium schools had their children and grandchildren studying in English, some in Sri Lanka, some overseas. So that was like the hypocrisy which stood out in front of all what I have said so far. That's, that's a very telling comment. And of course, it's, that, that's a phenomenon that is not unique to Sri Lanka. I mean, this is something that we find in many world countries. I mean, I was going to say post-colonial countries today, but not just post-colonial. I mean, it's something that we find in China, right? Uh, at least until recently, uh, Chinese elites are typically sending their kids to international schools or, or many of them to schools overseas, indeed, to English medium schools, to Harry Potter schools in Britain or, or elsewhere, uh, while mandating a, a rather more narrow uh, an extremely nationalistic um, curriculum for their own citizens. Um, so, yes, as I said, I mean, Sri Lanka is not unique in that respect. And, and uh, I think you said to me before, the point of the bilingual policy uh, that you were pursuing with President Kumaratunga, uh, the point as you saw it was to sort of democratize this uh, access to this um, yes. so, English medium uh, education. Correct. So democratizing access to English medium education, because like you said quite rightly, the international schools, the private schools, most of them were offering this option. International schools necessarily taught in English. So uh, this was a question, and the numbers were growing. International schools, when I joined the ministry at that time, was something like 150. When I left they had become 250 plus. So now it must be much, much more. So democratizing access and reducing the disparities. I mean, that's the point I want to make. So the disparities in education, in every country you get disparities. Again, Sri Lanka is not unique. But when it comes to disparities in physical infrastructure, in human 
infrastructure needed for education. Uh, disparities in curriculum, in pedagogy, in the basic essentials to carry out a classroom activity. So that widens the gap. That makes a class issue, in my opinion, because if mm. the disparities become less and less, the gap is narrowed, you will never have a class issue. So instead of, you know, bringing the what shall I say, those who are well endowed with education facilities, instead of bringing them down, if the gap is narrowed by bringing those who are at the bottom of the ladder up, I mean, we would have had a much more democratic system where good quality education can be accessed by all. So that was the fundamental problem. And I think that is the fundamental problem even today. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, well, I, I hate to use this phrase because it's been um, appropriated by some political factions in Britain of whom I don't approve. Uh, but what you're referring to, it seems, is a sort of educational leveling up, uh, granting access to what's previously been seen as a sort of privileged um, uh, type of education, English medium of education to uh, a wider demographic um, in Sri Lanka. And, and uh, that was something I believe that was very popular with students and with their parents um, when they were polled in the late 90s and early 2000s. But as you said, I mean, uh, that basically came to a stop in 2005 uh, with the presidential election. Um, I'm going to bring Yoko in in a minute to talk about social and emotional learning and, 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 and so forth. But just before I do, on this issue of language, so the bilingual program involving English and Sinhala, English and Tamil, uh, that you were promoting up until 2005, that sort of halted that. But then after the end of the war in the early 2010s, uh, we saw this new program on language and education, not the bilingual program, the trilingual education program. Uh, what happened to that? Um, I believe that started in about 2013, maybe slightly earlier, yeah. with support from the Canadian um, uh, bilateral aid uh, mm. agency, amongst others. Um, what, 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 if anything, has been the result of that as you see it? Good question. What, if anything, is the issue? Because um, I really don't think it's impactfully being operated in the schools in the island. I mean, I, I would... Due to lack of resources? Yeah, primarily, but more than that, I think it's the will. It's, it's the commitment from the top. I mean, Sri Lanka always has this thing. When there is a political will to do something, the political will gets translated to the official will. The official will get translated to down to the education zones, the principles. It, it's like a cascading effect. So when the will, the, the commitment, the drive is taken out from the top, everything crumbles, which should not be the case. In, when policies are enshrined in a uh, some legal instrument, and it can not change, necessarily not change. Whoever comes and goes, uh, then good policies will also always uh, continue and evaluation of those will go on. So what I want to suggest, I, I don't really know whether you are in a position to do this, but 
we have not had like a very solid um, kind of an evaluation of this particular topic in the current years. Uh, let's take language policy, whether it's uh, English medium instruction, you can call it bilingual policy, trilingual policy. Can we know in how many schools, 10,155, in how many schools is actually happening in the primary classes, in the junior secondary classes, and in the senior classes? I would love to see such a thing. And in why, why, what are the impediments for rolling out what had been started seven or eight years ago? Well, you're right. Yes, I think that is due an evaluation. I don't know whether I'm the person to conduct it or, or, or Yoko, maybe. But um, yes, uh, but uh, of course, one thing that's important to remember often with education policies is that they can be introduced in part or very largely for symbolic purposes. And I mean, with the bilingual education policy that you were involved in, I mean, as we've discussed before, uh, it was seemingly very popular with students and parents. Why? Because most students or certainly their parents can see a tangible benefit potentially to studying English in addition to their mother tongue. Uh, and, uh, when it, when may, it comes to the, sorry, sorry, go on. If I may butt in here another, even without doing any surveys or evaluation, there is a stark reality that we can all see every single day and it's growing exponentially and that is the demand for English education from rural and urban parents, from rich and poor parents and where do they go to get this English education? To tuition masters. Some tuition masters have Maybe their teaching is so good. They have classes with two, three hundred students, like mass scale teaching. So why are the tuition masters flourishing? It's demand. So people, parents are demanding this. Schools are not giving it. So what do they do? They turn to the optional, the alternative education that is available today. And the shadow education, yeah, which uh, which ends up being a which ends up further fueling educational Absolutely. inequality. Absolutely. In and very costly. Poor parents, I know parents who earn less than sixty thousand rupees a month. Maybe uh, laborers' uh, data, where the livelihood it's like you know a wage earning single-day wage earners, or maybe like drivers and people like that, they will save whatever little bit of money they can to make sure that their kids get to an English tuition master. So if that is not evidence for the demand, I don't know what is. Yes, uh, whereas you won't find generally rural parents um, taking out a, a mortgage on their farm or you know, selling their best cow to send their children to a, to a tutorial school to learn Tamil if they're Sinhalese or to learn Sinhalese if they're Tamil. That just isn't really the demand for that. And that, you, you know, in theory, there may be uh, a real benefit to that in terms of reconciliation, hmm. uh, potentially, uh, in an ideal world. But in order to implement such a policy, you would need huge resources 
um, you know, a complete overhaul of the education system and of the teaching work, work workforce of a kind that um, isn't really going to happen. Yep. Um, well, I mean, just, just to move on uh, and bring Yoko into the discussion. So, I mean, we have uh, the ending of the Civil War um, in Sri Lanka in 2009 mm -hmm. and uh, a period of post-war reconstruction following that and various educational reforms as part of that mm. sort of reconstruction drive, including this trilingual education policy. And leaving aside for the moment the question of how well all of that was going or not, then uh, from 2019, 2020, we've had the you know, cataclysmic impact, especially for a, a society that like Sri Lanka that is so dependent on tourism uh, of the COVID pandemic. And here am I sitting in a very nice hotel in Polonarua in sort of north central Sri Lanka. Uh, and it's basically empty, um, as were the hotels in other, most other tourist sites that we visited in the last few days. So, I mean, this crisis is ongoing. Uh, the economic crisis, um, these multiple crises that Sri Lanka has experienced and continues to experience, you know, there's been a lot of stress uh, for students, for their parents. Um, and I understand that many in the sort of education policy field in Sri Lanka, including you, have um, seen social and emotional learning um, uh, and, you know, related ideas or initiatives as potentially forming part of the solution or at least helping out with these um, stresses uh, that many people in society and including young people are experiencing at the moment. Now, uh, Yoko, until a couple of years ago, was working at the Mahatma Gandhi Institute in New Delhi in India, where social and emotional learning has been a, a very hot topic. Um, and would you like to say something about your experience there, Yoko, and how you uh, mm -hmm. found the response to social and emotional learning, both at the Mahatma Gandhi Institute and more widely in Indian society, and what you see as sort of lying behind this? And mm -hmm. So, um, um, even before the pre-pandemic years, you know, there has been like a growing momentum around social emotional learning. And I would say uh, UNESCO Mahatma Gandhi Institute of Education for Peace and Sustainable Development, uh, it was very, uh, like very early on amongst the UNESCO institutes uh, to take up, take this up. And along with uh, what they call digital learning, and um, in 2015, when the SDGs were adapted, you know, around the same time, um, um, this prevention of violent extremism through education, which is called like PBE, -E, um, like preventing or prevention of violent extremism through education. So PBE. -E, uh, has come to the like uh, table of UNESCO, and it was dealt with in the context of promotion of global citizenship education, 
So, you know, it came to the sort of under the mandate of MGIP as well, because our mandate, I mean, MGIP's mandate was supposed to be education for sustainable development and global citizenship. And MGIP uh, like proposed social emotional learning as a strategy to implement global citizenship education. So there was always like a very close link between the promotion of global citizenship education and social emotional learning and prevention of violent extremism. And I think in that context, Sri Lanka, you know, um, of course, partly because of geographical proximity, proximity between India and Sri Lanka, and also in you know, Sri Lanka being this like conflict ridden society and you know uh, but it's a like a sort of like a model country that achieved a universal access to education and so i think uh, sri lanka was like a very good place to do this strategic work on scl and uh, sdgs and sdg4 and um yeah, but that was like pre-pandemic. But you know, with the COVID nineteen pandemic, the momentum of SEL was even like more elevated because of all the you know additional crisis uh, we are witnessing over the past few years. Yeah, uh, um, but well, that's I, interesting. I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I was going to say. I mean, I think you're suggesting that Sri Lanka has tended to be seen uh, by organizations like UNESCO and maybe mm -hmm. other organizations, international organizations with an interest in, in education as a sort of laboratory uh, yeah. for um, policies or initiatives yeah. like SEL. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, Dr. Tara, maybe you can elaborate on this, but uh, personally, I have had the impression that Sri Lanka is very receptive to uh, the initiatives by the international organizations. Like, you know, they are very open to uh, working with various international partners. You mentioned, you know, development banks or UNICEF or, you know, or various bilateral agencies. So, um, yes, I think there is this perception that it's very, you know, uh, it's a good country to work with in terms of promoting like you know innovative initiatives so yeah i'd be interested uh, if you could comment on why or whether, whether you think that's the case and if so why i think so and let me just um preface my comments on what uh, yoko said with just to rewind back to 2019 2020 and so on so when we entered the pandemic when sri lanka entered the pandemic i mean we were pretty low on the what shall I say, on the ladder of trying to get the education systems revved up for the reasons I mentioned earlier. The pandemic came, uh, schools closed in Sri Lanka, just like it did everywhere else in the world. But the unfortunate thing is Sri Lanka schools closed for longer than most of the other schools in the world. And we were like one of the first, last five to 10 schools globally to actually reopen. I became part of uh, a group, an international group uh, called the um, Post-Pandemic uh, Commission to a Worldwide Commission to Educate All, head, 
all kids headed by Dr. Irvin Studin in Canada. And we had like vice ministers of education, secretaries of education, many people uh, of large number of countries. And we all used to meet very regularly online and exchange ideas on how other countries were coping with the pandemic firstly, because schools were closed, kids were locked in, and how they were trying to emerge. Uh, so as things went on, you know, online education became the norm, but Sri Lanka couldn't do that. Less than 40% of children had access to devices, even less had access to internet, so all of that. Uh, so we had, we had a journey through the pandemic, but while, when we were ready to open schools very late, like I said, November 2021, we kind of got, got thrust into the economic crisis. So we had, Sri Lanka had like a double whammy. So we had schools just about to reopen when again schools had to shut because the economic crisis meant fuel crisis, meant food crisis, meant everything. So the students in Sri Lanka and the teachers, we must never forget the teachers because the teachers faced an equal brunt of the problem in my opinion, were severely stressed let alone the learning losses that were not recorded until very recently, until like two weeks ago. Other countries had started recording learning losses, I think four or five months into the pandemic, because they knew that school closures were based on a presumption and not on evidence that closing of schools is going to mitigate the impact of the pandemic. I think you all know that. Uh, but in Sri Lanka, it didn't happen that way. So. Here we had the learning losses on one hand, emotional upheavals, very poor emotional well-being in students who had no way of communicating. They were trapped in abusive forms, abusive meaning emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse. If you look at the graphs, I mean, we have some statistics, some organizations have done how the level of abuse had spiked during 2020 and 2021. So all of that is happening and the teachers, we have 241,000 teachers on roll. The teachers never got like a training or advice on how to deal with this issue, even when kids started to trickle back into school. Now let me go to social emotional learning. I have been a mindfulness practitioner for nearly 15 years and I'm fully aware of social emotional learning and the benefits it has on emotional well-being amongst other. And I know how much self-awareness, which is like the fundamental root of SEL, uh, is linked to mindfulness. So I, I'm completely thorough with that SEL um, beneficial aspects for the education system. In fact, we had one webinar with, uh, I think it's Dr. MGIP, the director is Dr. Anda Arandappa. Ananta. Ananta. Ananta Durayapa. Yeah, he, me, and two others. So we had a discussion on this as well. So teachers were not equipped, even when they were able to talk to students online, small percentage, nevertheless, even when children came back to school, teachers were not equipped to use skills connected to SEL. They were not able to address the emotional issues that the kids were facing. Yes, they were looking at the reading deficit, the writing deficit, the math deficit, but there was no understanding on how to deal with the emotions because kids were, I mean, you all know, 
separated from friends, from boyfriends, girlfriends, from uh, everything, from uh, social interaction, from sports and everything. So it very, very like turbulent mindsets, but we couldn't address that. Now I am told that um, the government is introducing mindfulness into schools in stages, which is great news. Uh, because I'm associated with the organization that is actually doing the training of trainers program. And social emotional learning is very much on the cards. And the trainers who are going to be teaching the teachers are apparently being educated on SEL and how best to convey SEL to students. Um, so the final point I want to make is the question you asked whether Sri Lanka is a good a location, a kind of a laboratory to test this. Of course it is. Um, UNICEF and UNESCO has been, UNESCO has been very, very closely working in these areas, I know. Uh, plus the development banks and other development partners have all been working closely with Sri Lanka. But on, on SCL alone, if you just take SCL out of everything else, and I would like to always couple SCL with mindfulness, I don't think you can divorce the two. Uh, if there is some program you have in mind to even roll out SEL with mindfulness to a small sample of schools, test its impact, I mean, I'll be more than willing to help because like I said, I'm working with the organization that's actually doing uh, training of trainers for the teachers. On, on the issue of SCL and, and um, its uh, importance, uh, uh, as, you, uh, as you put it, for helping students uh, and helping communities perhaps to cope with the stresses that they've been experiencing, particularly over the last um, few years. If we think about the sources of the anxieties that students uh, young people in particular have been experiencing. I mean, um, you, you rightly mentioned school closures and the awful effects that that has on um, young people in terms of contact with their friends. And I mean, also in terms of socialization, but I think it's, you know, it's more basic, even more fundamental than that. I mean, it's just about being with other children, playing with friends. Uh, you said all countries in the world experienced school closures as a result of COVID. That's not quite true. Um, a lot of countries did, uh, both in Europe, North America, and in you know much of Asia and Africa. Japan didn't. Um, uh, I mean, China. China did exactly. in the end, but at a slightly di different time and for slightly different reasons. Um, but. Schools in Japan only closed for about five weeks. Did you talk about Singapore, I think? Singapore was the same. Yeah, I don't know, maybe. Um, but uh, even, I, I was just going to say, even during those five weeks, my son, my eldest son, was climbing up a wall, was finding it very distressing being separated from other kids. And so it's unimaginable for me to think of schools being closed for the length of time they were here in Sri Lanka. But I mean, if we think about other sources of anxiety for young people, but not only young people in Sri Lanka, what are they? Um, examination competition. I mean, you've mentioned these factors earlier. The, the intensity of educational competition, the intensity of competition that drives 
students and their parents to invest in shadow education, to spend huge amounts of money to try to um, boost their children's competitive chances. And that's in the context of a, a, a very unequal society um, and a, a, you know, a very um, unequal labor market, which is ultimately what drives that competition. Um, and the desperation that drives that competition is intensified when the government is forced, as it is at the moment, especially in Sri Lanka, to reduce its spending. Um, to actually reduce provision of a number of public goods. Um, and so when we think about that broader context, um, in that context, what, what, how much of a role can social and emotional learning and mindfulness play to help young people or to help their families, their communities to cope with all these tensions and anxieties? Um, I mean, it, it, it seems to be, to me, to be a sort of palliative um, treatment rather than a uh, a cure yeah. for the these problems. Absolutely, it is palliative. Um, see, if I just go back to what you said about what was the root cause for all of what we are talking about, and you mentioned exams. I what I didn't mention earlier was that. In terms of examinations, I mean, we have, for just an example, we have three national examinations in every year. The calendar is set for these three national exams. One at uh, when the student leaves primary school, the other one, the O-level, the GCSC equivalent, and the A-level, which is a school leaving exam. But in 2020, when schools close, obviously none of these could happen. And you all know how, like most of the schools, Exams in certain countries were either postponed or rescheduled with a particular date. Now, in Sri Lanka, this did not happen. It was a question of cancelling the exam, not saying when it was going to happen again, again rescheduling it, again cancelling. So there were loads of uncertainties. So the uncertainties together with children locked in school inside homes, uh, plus the necessity to study for this competitive exam. So all of that like contributed towards the enormous emotional uh, stress that the students were going through. That's Let's take that as extreme situations, 2020, 2021, spilled over drastically to 2022 with the economic issues and everything else I have already talked about. But apart from all of that, assuming tomorrow Sri Lanka comes out of this economic crisis, hypothetically, um, it, you know, starts to really flourish and starts to create jobs and everything else. Yet, unless the education system with its curriculum, with its pedagogy, with its relevance to novel job markets, with its ex without examination reform, if those are not going in parallel, the same tensions will remain. That's what I'm trying to say. So students' tensions primarily stem from the education system they are compelled to go through. But please note, more than 80% of our country, now it must be 90%, are rural and low income. So can you imagine the tensions those students will have at home? Today, we have more than 10% of the school population in severe malnutrition. 
So we have nutrition problems, we have low-income problems, livelihood problems of parents because people are losing jobs. And to cap it all, we have this highly tension-packed education system where kids are striving to get that extra mark. For what? I don't know. But that is what the parents aspire for. So if we are, if the question is, are we short of emotional issues? We have an overdose of it. So that spills over to lack of empathy because competition comes in, uh, interpersonal relationships break down, uh, the kind of respect uh, for other people's decisions, other people's opinions, um, ability to have good collaborative partnerships with peers and teachers, those break down. So the end result, or rather the ongoing evolving crisis would be violent extremism, right? So it need not be extremism. It could be just violence. It could be aggression, and we are seeing it happening. So it's a very complicated and serious problem, as I see it. Uh, So even if, like I said, the economic crisis, say somebody waves a magic wand and we come out of it, unless this is solved in parallel, we're not going to get anywhere. Well, uh, thank you. And that, I think that's probably the key point that we need to solve the economic crisis. We need to solve the social and economic and, well, and political, political sort of sources, sources of anxiety at the same time as applying perhaps these palliative treatments, if you like, Absolutely. social, emotional learning and mindfulness. Well, the danger comes is if policymakers, politicians see social and emotional learning and mindfulness as an alternative to solving these other problems. It will never be. (laughs) It will never be. So someone who has the understanding of what SCL is, what mindfulness is, where do they come from? They come from spiritual teachings originally, but today neuroscientists have shown us how applicable they are to modern day living, whether it's in schools or in universities or in healthcare sectors or inside administrators' offices, wherever. So we have that understanding, the knowledge. So all of these are essential, Edward, in my opinion. Uh, It's got to be a comprehensive shift in understanding, being knowledgeable, ideally being experienced, which has to precede policymaking in whatever form or shape it's going to be. Okay, well, thank you very much. Um, Perhaps... um, I should ask you to give us the title, the details of your, the book that you mentioned. Yes. Um, it says um, reforming education challenges to change. That's yeah. great. So, yeah, so reforming education challenges. challenges. So it's change. a kind of a, a journey on policymaking for nearly uh, 15 years, coupled with a kind of a memoir um, on practical experiences, because I think today, if somebody wants to embark upon the same program or the same process, this would be a very good indicator on the kind of how to navigate, what kind of pitfalls you're going to invariably face with the history, Lanka, and how to navigate particularly the political challenges. I was successful in some, but not successful in many others. Well, that's great. Yeah, I mean, that sounds really fascinating. So what we'll do is we'll put a reference to that book 
on the, the notes that we draft for this um, episode. And finally, what I'll also say is that, um, you know, as we've discussed, solving the economic crisis in Sri Lanka is fundamental to solving, you know, its other problems. Uh, so anyone who hasn't been to Sri Lanka and who has spare dollars to spend on tourism, I strongly urge them to come because it's a beautiful country. Uh, uh, full at the moment of rather empty hotels um, that are waiting uh, to host anyone who hasn't been here. So I strongly encourage you to, to yeah, get on a plane and come or offsetting the carbon that you use at the same time, of course. Thank you. Okay. Thanks very much, Tara. That was, that was really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.